Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American built, American strong. Habit, our gear, your adventure. Welcome to another campfire session. We've got I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself. Todd, you and Brandon, both of you. I know that you're with Eastman because we've had a great opportunity to spend time visiting, but tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and where we're going. That's the most important thing. Yeah, well, Larry, thanks for having us on. Oh, it's a pleasure. My gracious. We've had a wonderful time these last few evenings with you guys and everybody down here in Casper at DSC Wyoming. It's just been a ton of fun. But my name's Todd Helms, and I'm the managing editor with Eastman's Hunting Journals, and I'm the host and kind of the well, the good looks behind our wingman brand. Oh, right. <laughs> He's the head wingman. Yeah, yeah head head wing that's what you get called anyway. So, so wingman <laughs> wing is, uh, is the wing shooting side of Eastman's. Yes. A lot of folks are familiar with Eastman's hunting. Yeah, I, think, I don't think there are too many people on this planet that like the outdoors and are not from me. You haven't heard of it anyway. <laughs> right. So we we decided to to fire up Wingman five, six years ago now. Right. And it was it was it was an idea that I hatched out of I, I wanted to do like a waterfowl hunting magazine. Yes. And we decided we'd keep everything digital with it. And it's it's been a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. And we've been able through that, we've been able to explore new areas, new arenas, and honestly tell some stories that aren't being told like our sage grouse project. But 
Brandon, tell us a bit about yourself. Let's go back to the Sage Grouse thing because the, we spent some time together and got to know a little bit more about the project. I really want to get into that. Brandon, your background, you, you've been around a while as well, too. Yeah, that's a, a kind of a unique thing about Eastman's is that we all wear a lot of different hats and yes. we all have very diverse backgrounds. Most of us didn't go to college to be, you know, an editor or, or a, a, a business person or whatever, but we all end up doing all this stuff. Todd's a, an educator, a teacher by trade, and I'm a, a wildlife biologist by trade. And so I spent some time working for uh, one of the game fish departments in, in the country in North Dakota and the um, Mule Deer Foundation. And then, so I'm very familiar with, you know, the nonprofit world too, with like DSC and got to learn a lot more about it this weekend, which I did, oh, which was very cool. No kidding. And then, yeah, so um, we've both been in Eastman's quite a while. Um, I started there, I think I'm coming up on 13 years, something like that. Wow. So it's been a while. And he'd been there for a while. I didn't realize it was quite that yeah. long. Yeah. So no, it's been good. And I, my main role there is I, I kind of build relationships with other companies and brands and, and help on the, you know, ad sales side and, and all that. But like we said, we, we each get to wear a lot of, a lot of different hats and get to do some fun stuff too, besides just looking at spreadsheets. Thank <laughs> <laughs> goodness for that, right? <laughs> Both coming from, particularly you, Brandon, coming from a background of some of the other organizations. And before we get into the sagegrass thing, I really want to visit a little bit about, you mentioned something about you learned something new about DSC while you're here. Kind of explain what you're talking about there. Yeah, one thing that kind of blew my mind is I'm pretty familiar with most of the other nonprofit groups, which are doing a lot of good work. You Absolutely. Know, so this isn't a slam on them. It's more of just a added bonus positivity towards DSC because... You know, the each organization has a, a structure of how they split national money versus local money. Everybody knows that, right? And uh, but DSC's percentages that stay with the chapter, which are almost a hundred percent, it it's I was I had no idea. I thought it was just similar, you know, structure right. as everybody else. And when we got down here at the event, and you guys told us that you and Bruce, I went, huh? How's that possible? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I was super impressed. <clears throat> Super impressed. Well, we're very proud of, of how our chapter system works and right now we have 13 existing chapters, but bring Bruce on. Morosky has been a godsend as far as I'm concerned because we've got more chapters now waiting in the road and mm -hmm. the, the, down the road, I guess I should say, that will coming on board. And what you're addressing is that with DSC, the chapter initially they had whatever number of fundraisers they have, their top fundraiser of that top fundraiser, 75% of it stays with the chapter to begin with. Then there's a 20% of that that goes to the DSC Foundation. The DSC Foundation simply serves as kind of a, a clearinghouse of money kind of thing because the good thing about it is those chapters, then when they submit that money to the DSC Foundation, they tell the DSC Foundation where they want that money to go to. And so when you get right down to 95%, and the 5% just kind of covers some administrative costs sure. yep. uh, to maybe help get Bruce and, and me a couple of places and things like that. But 95% of whatever that top, and it's just that one, their top producer, goes to, they get to keep. Only 5% of it goes mm -hmm. to uh, DSC. And if they have more than one fundraiser, and it can they can maybe make say $50,000 on one and, and make $49,995 on the second one they do, only that 
50,000 is where that 5% comes from. So we're, we're here to support conservation. Of course, everybody knows that uh, conservation, education, hunter advocacy are the three legs of the DSC thing. So, mm-hmm. which brings us around to one of the things that the DSC Wyoming chapter is doing in terms of funding with you guys. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the sage grouse. I've, I've, I've seen sage grouse. I've had managed land where we had them on places in northern, north, really northwestern Colorado. But tell us a little bit about it, what a sage grouse is for those folks who may have never seen or heard one. And then why all this? Why is this important? Why why is there something being done now in sage grouse? Well, sage grouse are for for Wyoming folks especially. Sage grouse are pretty iconic animal. Yes, they are. When you see one, especially in full strut, when they're this time of year, that right now in the early mornings like this, they're out dancing and mating on, on what are called leks. But they're the largest native grouse in North America. And you get to Europe, they have the Capricalis bigger, but that's about the only grouse that's bigger right. yeah. than a sage grouse. They're, they're very large, size of a small turkey, basically. And a real drab-colored bird at first blush, and they blend in extremely well with their environment. And they're so, so much so that until they move, you very rarely see them, unless they're standing in a road someplace. Right. And this time of year, they're highly visible, like I said, early in the mornings, and their mating dance and ritual is so unique. They've got this big, spiky, like, looks like a turkey, but it's spikes. Right. You know, they look like a, like a heavy metal turkey. You know, you know what I mean? They're just cool. That's really a great They're just cool. And they got the big, you know, where they're, they have big air sacs on their chest that they puff out and they go in and out. And they, man, they're just, they're, they're a really spectacular bird and they are iconic across the West. And like a lot of, like a lot of animals that require vast landscapes, their, their numbers are, are declining in areas. Wyoming's a stronghold. You know, we were talking with uh, Pat Ginder last night, one of the guys here at Wyoming DSC. Right. And he's personally seeing lots, large numbers of birds. And he wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. The gentleman that we were speaking to that does all the weed and pest stuff mm-hmm. out south of Casper, he said, man, we were flushing hundreds of birds really? last summer and fall. So that's stories like you hear from the old timers, you know, like my, my grandpa is 97 and he tells me I was raised in Southwest, Western North Dakota and uh, the ranch that he grew up on, it was really close to a big chunk of BLM. Right. And he said they would go over there to shoot rabbits as kids and you know, all his generation all calls them sage hens. Yeah. And they're all sage hens. And he said, we, we'd hear where we, so many sage hens would get up. It sounded like a train coming through there'd just be tons of them and we're starting to hear some stories of that again right in certain locations not not, not across their range but right. in certain locations across their range their numbers are down you know when we look at when we look at greater sage grouse range you know like habitat across the western states overall they're down some areas down so much so that there's a there's a subspecies they're calling it in nevada um the or in a kind of on the Nevada, California border, that those birds have been, they're probably going to list those birds. It's a little small population yes. that's isolated and they're they're struggling hard. But in where sage grouse habitat is relatively undisturbed, like Wyoming and vast parts of southern Montana and Idaho, eastern Washington, Oregon, Utah, Utah those bird, birds do, are doing quite well, but they're not, those numbers aren't where they were historically. 
kind of like mule deer. They're they're very they're very tied in tight with mule deer. I like what you said about the train mm-hmm. because there's an old story that goes along with the railroad when they were building the railroads. They were feeding the workers so many sage grouse that the workers went on strike. They stopped working and said, "You can't feed us." Any more sage grouse? So they came up to it with a deal that they could only eat, they could only feed them sage grouse twice a week. Something, oh, something yes. akin to that. You yes. know, it was like right, right. we can't eat any more of these sage grouse. They were sick of them because sage grouse get a bad rap as being a not a very good eating bird, which is not true if they're cooked properly. They're like a lot of things. It's they're kind of they're like, excellent. It's right. kind of like Moses and the you know manna and quail in the desert. Exactly. They're like, how long do we have to eat this manna and quail instead of sage sage grouse? Yep. sage chickens. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so so they have a rich, rich history. They've been on the landscape since the beginning. Yes, you know, and just like I said, I keep using the word icon, but they really are. There's a handful of animals in the in the Rocky Mountain West that are iconic. You know, you think of antelope or pronghorns. Like mule deer, sage grouse, uh, elk are kind of ubiquitous across North America. Right, you know, right. elk. We're expanding elk range back oh into stuff gosh. where they they used to be in the, in the east, but mule deer didn't live east of the Mississippi. No. And pronghorn antelope didn't live mm. east of the Mississippi, mm. and so well, and they're and they're kind of a one of those barometer species too. Yeah. Where when over time, when you see you know biologists and sportsmen and others are seeing some disturbing trends, not just a little bit, but pretty massively, especially. 15, 20 years ago, I was like, are you, are you guys noticing that we're not seeing the counts on the lax like we did? And right. we thought, oh, maybe it's a dip in a year. And, and that could be part of it. But um, they're kind of, a, as Ike Eastman always calls them, they're sort of the canary in the coal mine species. Like, okay, there's something wrong. Right. So that's probably <coughs> going to affect also pronghorn and mule deer and a little bit of elk in the winter range. Yep. And even some of the elk just living on the desert. And, uh, but at the same time, I think we're still learning, you know, most grouse species are pretty cyclical, right? They, you know, rough grouse are like to the year, 10 years, 10 years, 10 yep, years, yeah. 10 years. Right. And you have, uh, yeah, and sharp-tailed grouse are a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. And I think part, I think it's like the perfect storm. I think there was some, there's things going on that we found through this film on the landscape that's happening that needs to be fixed. And it it's being worked on, whether it's predation by ravens, it's uh, better fencing uh, structures and how to mark the fences so they're not hitting them when they're flying. It's feral horses. It's, I mean, a whole bunch of different stuff. Right? Cheat grass. Cheat grass is a big one. That was and, one we kind of got into last night, you know, talking to some folks actually from Scotland that wanted to know how this compared to some of the management that they do with their grouse right, in Scotland. Right. We got talking about invasive grasses, cheat grass being, being the biggest culprit. And I said, what it does is I said, cheatgrass creates a fire load underneath there because it matures very quickly and then it dries out. Nothing eats it once it's mature. It's a little, cattle graze on it when it's young and green. Right. And some birds will eat the, the seed, the grass, the grass awns, but not very much. But what it does is what we're finding out through this, and this is new, new information to us that we learned, but biologists and state agencies have not, NGOs have been working on this for a long time that if we can mitigate cheatgrass, we reduce the fire cycle, we break the fire cycle. And what happens is when you, the fire cycle is at the point now where the cheatgrass catches fire from a lightning strike or somebody flicks a cigarette butt out of the car, you know, whatever, however it would have happened, naturally or man-made, that burns so hot that burns off everything underneath the sagebrush and it burns up the sagebrush. Sagebrush can't, doesn't regrow annually. 
it's a it's like a miniature forest. It takes a long time for this short forest sagebrush ecosystem to grow and and regrow, especially after fire. Well, cheatgrass comes right back, and so it's, it's choking the landscape out mm -hmm. is is what it's doing. And there's herbicides out there that are wrapped up in bureaucratic red tape that it's frustrating to watch that one agency can use another agency can't. It's like, uh, yeah. you know, it's, 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 those are the things that we learned on this project. Well, right and, down to the agenda. Well, you could, and, and then I was in to elaborate too, I'm back to those cycles. Yeah. And I don't think we really understand the sage grouse population, natural cycles either. And so I think we're seeing the perfect storm or some of these other challenges. Right. Plus, it might have been, might have been, I don't know for sure, but my, my theory is very long-term valley of the cycle. And I personally think we're seeing them climbing back out of the cycle. But again, it's not like rough grouse where battle, it's, man. well, yeah, they're fighting an uphill battle and they're not like rough grouse where it's going to happen in a couple of years. Right. It right. might have, it might take 50. Right. <laughs> Guys we were talking to and when you and I went and filmed the, the pheasant hunt in Montana, when we went mm -hmm. hunting in Montana mm -hmm. with the guys from uh, Onyx and and uh, Pheasants yeah. Forever and, yeah. and Federal, then they were talking about how grouse numbers in Minnesota this year, rough grouse numbers, were the highest that they, anybody's seen in mm -hmm. 50 years. They're like, yeah, it was ridiculous how many birds there were. But that's how, that's a short, short cycle. Right. It's up and down, up and down. I grew up with that. And we... Man, you made hay when the when the sun went, when you could when those cycles were great. It was great hunting, and on years when it you might struggle to shoot two three birds in a season, and that's kind of I that's what Brandon's talking about that that slow rebound. You know everything on the, everything in the sagebrush ecosystem seems like it it rebounds really. It's it's a real slow roll. It's nothing is like this. It's, now when you're managing for you know, whitetail and pheasants in the Midwest or upper Midwest, like what I used to do for the game of fish right. as part of my job, you could affect populations pretty fast. And oh, the yes. pheasants and whitetail recover quickly most of the time. Yes. And and it's easy to, you know, build some habitat, the animals will come, right? If you build it, they will come. And out here with these vast <laughs> landscapes, plus with hardly any moisture, so it takes forever for things to recover. And again, not that fire is bad, but too much fire too often with no moisture and the native plants aren't. Particular field that you're talking about in a in a native situation of sagebrush, yeah, there's going to be a fire. But as you mentioned, when you get all this fuel on the ground, yeah. that normal fire that you might have in native situations, it's going to be very beneficial to go through it. And it's not going to right. burn everything or burn all the seeds that are in the ground. It'll germinate some things as well. But yeah. that that doesn't happen when you have those really really hot fires. And in in fires that are just too often is a problem yes. with that cheatgrass. Right on top of each other, stacked up. And then with the the West has been in a pretty pretty substantial drought cycle. Yes. For the most part. There's areas that get water every year, you know, whatever. But as a general rule, the West has been in a heck of a drought cycle. So these birds are fighting the drought cycle. They're fighting cheatgrass. They're fighting too much fires. They're fighting a, a massive feral horse problem, which in Nevada is. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's through the, Nevada's. It's bad in Wyoming. Like I, could, like I could take you out here south of town and specifically southwest about an hour. And we'd see a lot of horses on the landscape. And, they're, and they've removed 2,000 horses in the last year. But they're, and, and so what we have in Wyoming is bad, and Nevada's got it 
way worse. Well, the bad thing about horses, as far as I'm concerned, most grazing animals have teeth only on the bottom. Uh-huh. Horses have teeth on the top and the bottom. So rather than just take the nip off the top, they go all the way down and they pull everything out. So you, you lose the plant. Yeah. You're not just grazing a part of it. You're losing that entire thing. And they, do, and they don't graze and move on. No. Like cattle, no. like, so bison, right? We had bison on yes. the landscape. They're native, the sage grouse would have cohabitated with them. Bison have been removed. We put cattle in their place. And if we rotate cattle and manage them properly, we can great. We can use cattle like bison. Amen. And but horses, they'll stay in one spot and just destroy and just destroy a spot. And then they'll move to the next spot. And just it's amazing when you look at these water holes, these music areas where the horses have been fenced out, how quickly they rebound. Right down mm-hmm. south of here on the Pathfinder Ranch, there's an area that just been decimated by Poor great, poor cattle management practices a little bit and fair horses. Right. And then they fenced out a big spring head mm-hmm. and did some restoration work there. It is night and day, and it was like, what, a year, year and a half? It looked like a different landscape. Well, you think about it with horses, and, we, and we're not, you know, we love horses. We love yeah, them. I know. We're yeah, in Wyoming. It's horses. A, it's yeah. a horse culture, right? Absolutely. We use them for hunting. We use them for whatever, but... Yeah. Uh, like uh, a guy I know back in the town we live in, he said, when have you ever driven by a pasture there's feral horses or, or somebody's stock where their heads weren't down eating? It's 24-7. And so you, if you have a bunch of feral horses out there doing that on the landscape that's pretty sensitive anyway, it's just a constant, not just a lawnmower, almost like a, I don't know, like a herbicide it's, going on. It's, it's just like a herbicide, yeah, yeah. Because they just essentially remove everything. <laughs> yeah. Everything. Again, it's not they're just not kind of nipping it's like a cow or a deer or elk or whatever. I mean, they're going to run their tongue out or they're going to nip at the very most yeah. nutritious part there and yeah. then move on kind of thing. The horses you miss just go there and he'll just eat things until there's nothing left. Yeah, they've got that one one digestive tract. Yeah. You know, they're not exactly. ruminant. So yeah. they get they got to eat a ton, a ton to fuel middle. that big body. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And yeah, we all like horses. Everybody likes oh, horses. Yeah. But you look at that situation and it's kind of like we can do better. Yes. You know, and so there's, there's that. Then there's nest predation, you know, with, with, we have more ravens on the landscape 24-7 now. And they're hard on not just sage grouse. Mm-hmm. They're hard on all ground nesting birds. Right. They enter because they're nest predators. You see them, they'll be hovering along, riding the wind, which today, yeah, that's typical Wyoming wind. Yeah, it's blowing about 20, yeah. sustained, you know. <laughs> Maybe a little light. Yeah, just yeah. a light breeze, you know. But they're, they'll just hover five, six feet off the ground, riding those wind currents. Yes. And their head's down, there, and you see them, and they're, that's what they're doing. They're looking for food. And again... Doing what they do, that raven, they're not inherently bad about a raven. No. But when there's too many of them, mm-hmm. and they're nesting in old abandoned structures, they're nesting in areas, you know, abandoned, abandoned cattle sheds or, right. you know, whatever. They're so highly adaptable. Ravens thrive where humans live. Sage-grouse don't. Sage-grouse need a, need a wilder, more natural landscape. Red fox, same thing, which was really interesting to see that gentleman from Scotland's reaction when I brought up red foxes because they've lost their ability to manage foxes. I know. And he was like, mm-hmm, foxes are really hard on nest, on ground nest. Well, and that birds. just comes back to kind of the whole big overarching topic, I think. It doesn't matter if it's ravens or horses or uh, foxes and wolves and bears and whatever. Yeah. We just need to manage them. You know, that's one of the things that we're tasked with as people 
is to yes. manage wildlife and managing is you know the definition of management is managing it like helping things do what they need to do whereas non-management is hands off letting them you living in this utopian mindset yeah. that well things will just recover you know things will just well <laughs> we're that we're so far past that you know with the way our landscape is always changing with more and more people and all that that it has to be managed and uh that's the detriment i mean you know valerius geist when he was still alive he would just highly criticize the united states's large predator management strategies because basically the strategy was don't do anything you can't shoot them you can't control them you can't whatever and uh and that it's not good for those critters either no know? no it's not even good for that group That's of species, animals yeah. that who are the predators right they'll suffer in the long run as well too yeah exactly and the public perception you know it's such a cantankerous argument all the time with any of these topics and they should and it shouldn't be it should be just like managing a deer it should be like managing a, exactly. a, a pheasant or a, a grouse species like everything needs to be managed together not just well we're just going to manage this little piece of the puzzle and leave the rest of it go yeah it well, didn't work that way no. yeah and unfortunately you're getting to i think what larry wanted wanted to touch on as well <clears throat> we uncut we this project, sage grouse projects, or let's go home, let's go do a sage grouse hunt, that'd be cool. And then it turned into, well, we peeled back one layer and there was 40,000 layers, like an onion times a thousand, you know? We just keep peeling stuff back, we're finding all this stuff, all this research. Lindsay, our video producer, has been incredible with this because she's uncovered so much of what we've found through getting, lining up interviews for this project. Right. And the more people we talk to, the wider it's the scope just gets huge. One of the things that we that we came to see pretty quickly was there's an agenda with sage grouse to use sage grouse if, if you if they can get the birds listed on the ESA that pushes then closures of habitat, which out west where the sage grouse lives affects ranching. It affects oil development. It affects recreational use. We've got a lack out here. We've got a known population of sage grouse on this landscape. We're going to close down this massive section of ground because sage grouse will fly 15 to 20 miles from the lek to nest. And you get 50 of them out there doing that every direction. Well, you start, you got to start closing down a lot of ground. And pretty soon there's no energy development going on. I mean, when we, I could, I could rant about this, Larry, but I'm not going to. <laughs> But that it's, it's something we uncovered that there's an agenda out there to use the sage grouse to close down public lands. Well, on the public land footprint that could be affected, you know, you being a Texas guy, you know how big that state is. And it's a landmass that almost equals the size of Texas out west with all the cumulative acreages. And it's like, that's mind numbing. Yeah. Not it to really is. That's talking about mind boggling. Yeah. You know, not to mention that. the economic footprint. The no. economic oh, footprint yeah. is in the billions of dollars. And, and you got, you know, people um, in, in, we interviewed oil and gas companies. We interviewed uh, ranchers. We interviewed state and federal agencies. We, I mean, we interviewed folk, uh, you know, from the Audubon Society. Yeah. You know, we, we wanted a vast Yep. group of perspectives kind of a we report you decide type of a thing where it was uh there's so many angles that have been talked about in in the sage grouse story that affects so many other species and so many other ways of life 
we thought, well, let's dig in once we started. Let's dig in and just tell what's going on. We don't have to sugarcoat this one because somebody might get mad and mm-hmm. we might no, we're gonna say this is what's happening. Right. So that people, the average consumer that maybe lives in Chicago and doesn't uh, even know what a sage grouse is. I mean, there's even a lot of people in Wyoming, maybe that aren't hunters or whatever, that they don't know what a sage grouse is right. and they don't care. Or why they, should I care about sage And grouse. they don't understand why that prehistoric looking bird and being listed could dramatically affect ways of life on a vast scale. And, you know, and affect them very directly without yes. them. Because yes. it will. Yep. <laughs> I don't care if you live in the town, if you don't have anything to do with agriculture or whatever, you yep. do. That's yeah, right. you're absolutely you right. And I, I don't I don't want to fear monger on right, this right, by, right. by any stretch. It's not like, oh, we're, the big bad boogeyman is going to take all your public lands. That's not the point. The point is it's out there. That, that agenda exists. We need to be cognizant of that. Yes. And we need to be working to protect to conserve sage grouse and sage grouse habitat. So that's not, that's not even on the table. You know, right. we can, we can help these birds come. We can help these birds right. come back. Right. And it's just, you know, being more intentional with that. I think people have always just taken for granted that, ah, oh, those sage grouse are always out there. You know, that, that they're whatever, you know, yep. they're not a big focal point. Well, then if you start seeing some of these disturbing trends, you're like, well, maybe we need to be a little more intentional about this right. bird because what else is being affected? Like we said at the beginning, a lot, a lot. Absolutely, of yes. Human beings and other wildlife, and 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 and. Tell me a little bit about. You mentioned the film. Tell me about that. So the film right now, we've got a short version that's out right now, and it's right. seventeen minutes, and and it's kind of the the intro, the the teaser. It's a long teaser, but the, the teaser to the full feature film. So our plan was to have a thirty to sixty minute just short documentary. Well, the more as Todd alluded to, the more we dug into it right now. Expand, expand, yeah, expand, right now, Lindsay, our producer, who's I'm pointing over here because yeah. she's sitting right here. I'm in the corner. But Lindsay uh, right now has it cut, cut down to about an hour and 45 minutes. And even now it's like, we're barely telling the story. How do we, how do we get that down to an hour so we can run on, the outdoor channel and that people aren't bored to tears on YouTube watching too much, you know, data and information that it's not interesting. And so that's kind of the challenge that we have too, is that it's, it's a very important topic, but trying to tell the story in an interesting way to make sure people are watching it the whole way through and not getting bored with it too. Cause you don't want just a stuffy documentary with fun facts that people are like, yeah, blah, 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 after 15 minutes, I don't want to listen to this. And so that's a that's a big challenge right now in, in incorporating even more information that we learned on this trip into the film. So we, we're actually adding to it before we even get home. And uh, but so we're hoping that the long version of the film is going to be done. We don't have a hard date, but sometime in the next few months here, it's right. going to be done. And and then uh, we're going to just try and put it everywhere. We're going to have public showings of it. We're going to have it on OSG on the Outdoor Channel. We're going to have it. Of course, on YouTube, we're going to be sharing it with Dallas Safari Club right. so that they can be sharing it, you know, and, and just getting this isn't this is one of those projects like, you know, at Eastman's with our Wingman episodes or Eastman's Hunting TV episodes or Beyond the Grid episodes, whatever we're doing, our podcast, we, you know, it's, you know, it's a business. And so we're trying to get as many eyeballs or ears on it as possible, right, right. you know, partially for, you know, so that we can grow our footprint and ha- keep our sponsors happy and all that stuff that we do. But this is this one's different. This one is. We want people to be informed members of the voting public 
you have to know this story. You have to. It's too important not to. It affects, like you said, Larry, it affects <clears throat> the guy in New York or Chicago that's doing his job, going back to work, the the, the mom running kid. You know, we, we're where we're staying right now in Casper, the, the hotel is full of hockey kids right now. I mean, so full that you can't Literally get away from breakfast. <laughs> I mean, it's full, right? Rolling out doors. Yeah, and it's it's fun to watch these families, Absolutely. you know, come and go. And it affects them. And they're not even thinking about it. They're rolling through the landscape from Casper to Rock Springs and got to get home and go to work tomorrow. And they're rolling through some of the most pristine sagebrush yes. habitat in the world. Yes. There's only a handful of places on the planet that this exists. And if if it goes away, if it gets protection sanctioned on it, I shouldn't say protections, if it gets shut down to the point where you're looking at billions of dollars that are going to be gone out of the economy, and it's going to affect soccer moms, it's going to affect your urban dwellers. And so when you see this, I'm, where I'm going with that is how how do you get involved? How do you how do you help? Exactly. You That's where I wanted you to go. You support <laughs> Organizations like Dallas Fire Club, like DSC, right? You become a member. You, you know, if if y'all, if all you got the money to do is, and you, and you live in Wyoming, and all you can afford to do is buy a membership and maybe do some habitat work, great, awesome. If you can, whatever level you can be involved at is beneficial. Even if it's just being, a, you know, becoming a member of groups like this so that you're in the know of the topic. Yes, so becoming aware. Of, when you are yeah. the soccer mom at your kids' game, you can be talking to other people yes. about these issues so they're informed. And yes. it's just a snowball effect. And and we all benefit for, for doing that. So And so does the wildlife. And that's really <clears> what this is about. You know, it, it's so cool. And in, in that 17 minute video, I was blessed enough to be able to have my girl two my two girls in it. I have, and I've since had a little boy. And they were my oldest was five at the time when we shot that, maybe six, and the other one was four. And they're little. And we're out there watching birds on a lek and kind of doing a lek survey in close to home. They eat it up, Larry. They're they're just they're just they love watching those birds. And if they never even get to hunt those birds, the fact that we could still go watch them yes. matters. Yes. You know, because we're down to, in this in this area of Wyoming, they have a one-day sage-grouse season. Where we are, it's about two weeks, but it's short. And I, honestly, you don't, we don't take a lot of those birds. The All the studies, all the nest surveys, the, the hunting is regulate, highly regulated hunting like we're doing does not affect the bird's population. Um, but there's areas where it's like the numbers are low enough where it's like, there's no, we can't take any birds. And so we're, we're managing that. Right. And right. being able to have my kids know that that bird is on the landscape. We see them when we're antelope hunting. We see them when we're driving to go fishing someplace up in the mountains and they're, they're dusting in the road first in the morning, you know, they, they get a kick out of those birds. And if we can bring one home and eat it even better, you know, they have feathers. We had, um, I was fortunate enough to do a podcast and do an actual hunt with uh, Ramsey Russell. I think you're probably familiar with Ramsey. Very highly traveled bird guy. And my little four-year-old walked over and said, and we had him over to the house for dinner. And she said, Mr. Ramsey, I'd like to give you this, but you have to guess what it is first. <laughs> she handed him a feather. And it's it was a rump feather off the back, the underside of the rump, and they're right. black. 
kind of long, mm-hmm. oval-shaped, and they have white tips. And he could not place that feather. And that's no knock on that's no knock on no, Mr. No. Mr. Ramsey. It's not something he's, he was familiar with. And so, so then my four and six year olds are explaining to him about the sage ground, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and telling him and, and, and Mr. Ramsey, the Cheyenne, the Northern Cheyenne used to build headdresses out of the feathers from the sage grouse and the dog soldiers had a headdress that they wore. It's like a bonnet and it has, and it's all these feathers. And when they would dance, those feathers would jiggle and those dances were inspired by the sage grouse on the Lex. And he's eating it up because he that he's that guy, you know. He likes right. that history stuff. And here's my little kids because I've plunged them into this because <laughs> it's so important that we know that we know the history. We and we preserve those birds because they've been on the landscape longer than we have, you know, in North America. I'm not Native American. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Native American. <laughs> well, how can somebody? get involved with this and how can they learn more about the project that you guys are doing right now? The quickest way to learn more about the project itself is to go on to Eastman Hunting Journal's YouTube channel. That's where the video is housed right now solely. And then again, it's going to get put on the outdoor channel. It's going to be shared with a lot of our other partners who are sponsors of this. And, um, and, but the, really the, the real call to action, I think for the average Joe Blow going to work every day and just feeding family and all that is and and I, I know we've been hitting Dallas Safari Club, you know, plug pretty hard during this, but that it, there's a reason for it. We're partners with DSC and uh also TRCP, which is a Theodore Roosevelt yes, Conservation yes. Partnership, both phenomenal groups, and become members of those groups. They're big on hunter advocacy, they're big on partnerships like this. And if you can become a member, if you can attend a fundraiser, if you can donate, if you can spread the word, then those groups that, as we learn, get to keep most of their money locally, well, have local decision where the money goes. Yeah. It doesn't have to stay locally. They have the decision-making power. But in, And then cumulatively, when you join those groups, then Dallas Fire Club or TRCP or name the conservation group, they have a membership base with a lot of power behind it so they can go to Washington, D.C. and affect policy for a yes. good thing for wildlife. And, and so that's, in my mind, the biggest call to action is, is hunt, fish, and trap. Do that and become a member of these groups. And because if you do that, you are, as I tell my kids, I've got four kids and my, my oldest is, is our only boy and he loves hunting just like I do. And my girls... And they hunt because I, I make them. They like being outside and stuff, but they're not killers. You know, it's not their instinct, but but they, they do it. And I, I've told all my kids, I'm like, even if you don't like hunting, you're going to do it as long as you live in this house. Because I want you to be an informed member of the voting public. Because then, even if you don't hunt when you're an adult on your own, when something comes up on an initiated measure on a ballot, you're going to go, well, that's not right. I know what that issue is. No. Or yes. Whatever it is. Right. And... Um, being able to affect change that way and just getting involved. And so I think that's one of the, you know, we have such a cool model of wildlife management, the North American model of wildlife management. Like we've heard the term so much lately. Um, and, and we don't do a good job telling people about it. We are the envy of the globe. And it's being, under, and it's coming under attack. Yeah. We're, yes. we're, we're seeing, we're seeing the North American model of wildlife conservation being stripped away, stripped down and removed from states like Washington. And they're doing it with the ballot box. 
And it's the idea is to take hunting out of the equation and the utopian mindset that mm -hmm. these animals can be fine. And it's like, mm, no, it's, it's not the way this is going to work. The, the North American model of wildlife conservation has been proven successful for a hundred years, over a hundred years now, brought multiple populations of species back from the brink of nothingness mm -hmm. and strip that down, take that away. And a large part of them, the North American heritage, the United States heritage and the, the great blessing of the wildlife that we own as people and citizens of the United States is gone. Yeah. Yeah, so that's called to action. That, that's what it, it is. is called action. <laughs> it's big action that needs to be taken. <laughs> yes, sir. And, and immediately too. Yeah. And that's the I think the, the overall thing right there is become involved, become knowledgeable. And if you got money to spend it, conservation costs. Mm -hmm. And but learn about wildlife, learn about habitat and what you guys are doing through Eastman's and with this uh, Sage Grouse initiative is absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you. It's uh, fun. I, I was aware of it, but I really wasn't aware of it as much as I have become. And I really appreciate that. Tell us how somebody can find out a little bit more. You mentioned the, the, uh, the YouTube channel and all that. How do they go to the web, a website or YouTube? Yep, it's or? pretty easy. Eastmans.com. It's Eastmans.com. E-A-S-T-M-A-N-S.com. And, and we have more information and content and things to read and listen and watch that you could lose yourself the rest of your life and never take it all in. So I think we have five podcasts now, mm -hmm. five, maybe five or six. I can't even keep track. <laughs> I host a podcast with the wingmen side, right? We do YouTube channels. There's a, there's a weekly television series on the outdoor channel, right? That, that we do two magazines, two magazines, live events. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's mind numbing really. It's pretty cool. But the, and the good thing is, you know, a lot of people, like you said, here in the outdoors, you know, the Eastman brand, you know, of Eastman's Hunting Journal, Eastman's Absolutely. But one thing that people don't know is how passionate the Eastman's get about being informed, about loving the resources. And they know that we have a tremendous opportunity and responsibility as a media company in the outdoor space to tell the story and not just not just shoot a documentary, but we have the footprint to get it out there yes. to a lot of people, yes. to, to really millions. We touch millions of eyeballs every week in our office. And uh, that's a that's a pretty big responsibility when you think about it. In fact, just a real quick funny story. The first time I ever hunted uh, for our TV show, I grew up watching the Eastman's. And, so, and, and then I work on the sales side. And so my job is to know how many eyeballs are watching the show right. right now and how many readers we have and all that stuff. And so... I, I, um, I grew up watching it, grew up reading it, and then now I'm in front of the camera. In fact, I was on an antelope hunt just west of Casper, Wyoming here where we're sitting uh, about 20 miles away. And um, and I, talking to the camera guy who I just met, he was a contracted camera guy that wasn't in our office, just met at Taco Bell in town and we were going out antelope hunting. And, uh, and I'm you know talking about hunting and he can tell I'm passionate about it. And as soon as he turned that camera on, I went, <laughs> and I got so nervous and was really talking smooth and short of breath. And, and he, he hits the record button off and he goes, dude, we edit. You got to relax. <laughs> but the point was, I knew how many people were watching this show. Exactly. And I'm oh like, don't screw God. up. Don't say something stupid. But yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. 
Yeah. See how far that it's come, but well, it's been interesting because I knew Gordon. Yeah, <laughs> he was kind of the patriarch. He used to come to South Texas, and I got to know him well down there years ago. And of course, got to know Mike because of that, and then then his sons as well too. To watch that develop over the years has been just phenomenal, and oh. it started with him and that passion that he had for wildlife and and letting people know about it, kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, we've got a, a rep. Uh, replica not a model but the actual camera that he used to tote around you see in those famous pictures of them in a big wooden tripod and that yes. Polex camera yes and we waited one day just because we were curious <laughs> so 90 days in the northwest territories he's toting this thing around 90 days and it was it's something like 88 pounds or something oh, like yes. that and we complain when our jet boils <laughs> two ounces too heavy yeah or, you know it's like well i'm not wearing that pair of boots are too heavy you know <laughs> i mean we are not tough compared to those oh guys. my gosh and there's yeah. the Larry, there's there's Gordon stories, and we could sit here for days and tell. Oh, I, stories, I know, you know, I know. And we'll do that on another time. It I, would be it would be it, fun. I, yeah. It really would be. I'd like to get Mike and and maybe even Mike and you, there you guys go. And just kind of say, okay, let's talk about some yeah. of the past type of things. That would be fun. But the overarching thing about the about the love of wildlife is is kind of what Eastlands is really about. Mm-hmm. And it it's, is. It's what it we is. do. You know, you'll you'll see Mike. He's retired, right? And you'll see him out in his vehicle photographing mule deer on the winter range in 20 below. And he's just out there sitting there north of town, just hanging out, watching deer, a few elk up there. Not everybody does that. You know, people just drive by. They don't even see those. And and he's out there watching. And he instilled that. Gordon instilled that in him. And he instilled that in his his sons. And it's just. And he's instilled it upon those folks who are associated with him. And that's the goal. Which I, I can see in you guys and dearly love. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, feel feels the fire for sure. Feel the fire. Yeah, it's a good way to end this. We need to feel the fire, guys. So I want to thank you so much, Todd and Brandon, for being with me here today on on DSC's campfires, and I look forward to another opportunity, and we'll make that happen. So thank y'all very much. Thank you so much for what you're doing with the uh, Sagegrass Initiative as well, too. And, Learn more about anybody that's listening to this. Learn more about that. And again, go to eastlands.com is a good place to start. And then you can go to all kinds of other things that they do there. But again, thank you guys so very much for being with us here around the campfire. And as I said, look forward to the next opportunity. Well, we thank, thank you, you for uh, for having us. Uh, I mean, if you would have told me, you know, 10 <laughs> years ago, I'd be sitting in, in Larry Wysoon's hotel room recording a podcast with them and be like, you got to be kidding me. Yep. Because, uh, you know, not going to happen. No, 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 no. You know, my dad's so jealous right now. He's, <laughs> a, he's, a, he's a Larry Weston fanboy, man. I'm, telling <laughs> well, I'm, I'm truly honored. So maybe we can all kind of get around a campfire sure. here for too very long. There you Sounds go. Sounds good. And thank you for all that you do for DSC and, and wildlife as well. And, and having us on, this has been great. You're very kind. We're all in this together. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Round Top, Texas. Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 White Till Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.